on this on to the record. Where... Um, okay, well, welcome everyone to the Sweet Tea Podcast. I am joined by our guest, Sherry Sylvester. She is epic boss lady. She has a great story, and so that's why you'll notice our setup is a little different. We're doing interview style. Um, she really, the big part of her story is not only is she like number one top dog in Texas when it comes to political conversations and political expertise and communications, but also she started out uh, liberal, a Democrat, and then has transitioned now to Republican conservatism. And so we're going to like dive into her story and see what that's all about. So Sherry, right now you are a distinguished, she, distinguished senior fellow for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. What does that role look like here? It's different every day. <laughs> it's different every day. I do a lot of work on Texas history and uh, keeping Texas Texan. But I also got involved in the last session in something that I think is critical to keeping Texas Texan, and that is fighting the battle against diversity, equity, and inclusion in Texas. Mm -hmm. We needed a bill. I worked on the bill, uh, and uh, we got that passed, the strongest anti-DEI bill in the country. That's amazing. And can you just walk through really quick for our audience, like what DEI is, just kind of like in a bullet point? DEI is the driving woke policy on campuses, it's in businesses, it's everywhere, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, it's the policy that has given us things like at the University of Texas Medical School, uh, if you're African-American, you just have to make a 75-percentile score on your MCATs to get into med school. Wow. For uh, Anglos and Asians, it's 25 percent. Wow. So it's changing, changing the bar. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, separate graduations hmm. for African-Americans, for lesbian and gay and transgender kids, for Hispanic kids. It's, for me, it's everything that we have worked against since I was involved in the civil rights movement, kind of coming out of that in mm -hmm. the 70s, when we wanted to be colorblind. Right. We see color. But the goal is for it not to matter. Yeah. Now it's the only thing that matters. Yeah, like the spectrum has like swung so far the other way, and you've gotten to witness it starting from the side all the way over to where it is now with DEI. It's just it's totally wacky. So we have just begun to hammer away at that here in Texas. Yeah. Thanks to the courage of Senator Brandon Creighton, the Republican out of Conroe, Lieutenant Governor uh, Abbott signed the bill. So. Uh, but already the universities are holding secret meetings and not so secret meetings going, how can we get around this? We don't have to pay any attention to this law. So yeah. we'll, we'll have to see. It's, it's, a, it's a big war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I also have here that you are an award-winning journalist. You're an amazing <laughs> writer. You write an article here. What's the name of it? I write uh, the Ninth and Congress newsletter. Yes. Which is, we're here at Ninth and Congress. The Capitol is up at 15th and Congress. And so I think this perspective on Texas is, is a pretty good one yeah. from right here. And I try to write about issues that, how they, how they look from here. I've... Uh, I've worked in, this is the fourth state capital that I've worked in, and I've also worked in Washington, D.C. So I have a, a lot of different perspectives about place yeah. and how politics expects, uh, impacts place, uh, place impacts politics, I yeah, should yeah. say. And so uh, 
So hence, ninth in Congress, here we are. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting, the media uh, is at 10th in Congress. Interesting. That, that building is filled with reporters. Yeah. And, uh, so they've got to block up on us. And you have a podcast. And I have a podcast, Ninth in Congress. Yeah. So everyone, go check that out. It would be awesome if you could like and follow that as well. Shameless plug. And you can get it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> that was the wrong. That was like a comedian thing. It should have been like, do, do, do. Like, yeah, your little <laughs> intro to your pod. Um. Okay, so you've done a lot of really cool stuff. I remember when we were talking earlier, because normally our viewers know we usually bring like a food to kind of get to know our guest. And you talked about bringing on tomatoes. And I have a quote here that you said your father would often say, and it's that we have the best tomatoes in the world. What does that mean? And where are they? <laughs> I am, I grew up in the Oklahoma oil fields. And my father made it very clear to me from the moment I could understand tomatoes that the best tomatoes in the world grew in Oklahoma. And clearly, we were never allowed to eat a tomato from California <laughs> because they tasted like sawdust. And when mm -hmm. they would be in the stores, you would say, you know, don't even bother to buy them. And of course, not from Texas. Mm, oh. And and what I learned about this, I mean, I believe that there were good tomatoes. And then later on in my life, I, I was working up in New Jersey and New Jerseyans, they, they, I would get there and they'd say, well, of course, you've tried our New Jersey tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a whole thing. They think they have the best tomatoes. You know, not Pennsylvania, not New York, but all big agricultural states up there. They And I went to France. Clearly, best tomatoes oh, in the world are in France. <laughs> and so my theory is that wherever you are, you think your tomatoes are the best. I've never talked to any Texans about how they feel about tomatoes. I think a lot of our tomatoes come out of Mexico, but... yeah. Which are, and they seem yummy to me. But. They, I mean, I love our tomatoes. Yes. I would argue that they are, in fact, the best in the world. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's throwing down the gauntlet. Um, yeah, so it sounds like your father had a really big impact on your life when you were younger. Um, can you kind of describe, like, most fathers would, like, for me and my dad, like, we did, we would bake cakes together. What did you and your dad do together? <laughs> Well, we campaigned a lot. My father was a politician. Love it. And uh, he was the mayor of our small town. He was on city council first, and then he was elected mayor. So we did a lot of uh, going door to door. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the small town, so I'd be I'd be there and handing out the brochure and talking to him. This cute little Sherry Sylvester, <laughs> all tiny. And my sister, there would be two of us, two <laughs> little blonde-headed girls, and. Uh, uh, winning him over. He had come back from World War II. He was a, wow. a war hero and uh, had come from pretty dire. He had he had grown up, was born in town and, and pretty uh, humble circumstances. So the fact that he could come back, he worked for an oil company and and do this. And he for him, politics, I mean, he, he was he was a Democrat. Everybody was Democrat. But uh, for him, it really had to do with public service. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, he did these great projects. He, for example, he looked at the city map and it was not accurate. Interesting. So he redrew all the lots and the numbers to so that you had the right number on your house. And then he went to the Boy Scouts and got 
got them involved in selling house numbers. Oh. So he got so we got all the numbers straightened up so you had had the right number. That's on really your house. cool. And he bought the water company so that the city owned the water company. I mean, he got the city to to to, to do that. So for him, it was you know you invested in your community. We uh, what we traded in the community. You know, it was cheaper to go to Tulsa to a bigger store mm-hmm. to shop. Mm-hmm. But my father always said, no, we, we trade here. That's we trade cool. with the businesses here. That's cool. Where you get your the best tomatoes in the right, world. Right, where you get the best tomatoes. And, and uh, you may have to pay a little bit more, but you're helping the grocery guy yeah. or the drugstore guy or the restaurant guy. Yeah. So you said your dad was a Democrat. So was you a Democrat. were raised like as a Democrat. And then what what did that look like to you as a kid? So you said it was all about civil service, serving the community. What did Republicans, what was your view of Republicans at that time? And I'm not just not not as a little girl, but in like your youth. Well, there there weren't a lot, although my grandparents were Republicans. Uh, and they also lived in the town. Oh. And my father uh, just thought that they, that this was an ignorant decision on their part. Uh most Republicans in Oklahoma and in Texas at that time were African American. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents were not African American, but they were Republican, and they had really good reasons for being Republicans. Your grandparents, my grandparents, right? Uh, my grandfather was the son of a Civil War soldier, a Union veteran. Wow! So when he went to register to vote, he said, "Lincoln's army." I'm a Republican. Wow. My my grandmother had an even better story. There was at that time, uh, following the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma, there was a lot of uh, socialism. Mm-hmm. There there was there were these groups called Oklahoma Reds, hmm. and they were socialist. Oklahoma had a socialist governor. Wow, I did not know that. And uh, she said, my grandmother said when they got the vote in, in 1918, 1919, it was earlier than 1920, she went down and she registered as Republican, she said, because her father had gone to all those socialist meetings and he had all those socialist magazines and things in the house. And she said, I read them all. I didn't believe a word of it. Wow. And I became a Republican. So once I learned that, I had the force of my father seeing the Democrat Party as the party of the working man Mm. against wealth, which was how Republicans were seen at that time. On the other hand, I had my own grandparents who had very principled reasons for being Republican, and Mm -hmm. they were poor as church mites. So it it raised questions early on for me. Right, seeing that dichotomy between the two. Um, So then you went off to how did you get to the northeast well via the northwest (laughs) (laughs) i i left oklahoma state and went to portland oregon and and worked in uh uh criminal justice police community relations and i was always writing you know i wrote op-eds and things yeah and but i i was was doing uh what we call here at TPPF right on crime, but what back then I guess you would call left on crime, <laughs> you know, really trying to deal with recidivism and alternatives to incarceration yeah. and particularly looking at uh, police reform. 
And um, I worked in Oregon, but I didn't think that there was any point in doing that kind of work mm-hmm. in a West Coast city where there wasn't any crime. I wanted to be in a burnt-out, riot-torn East Coast city wow. to see if these ideas actually worked. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I got a job in New York City and began working there on uh, a lot on corrections issues, prisons, jails, worked on uh, the mayor appointment to the his uh, crime and drug commission. So I did I did work there. Yeah. And, and so was the mayor at that time um, David Dinkins? Not yet. Okay, we will get to that. <laughs> um, okay, so you moved there. Just tell me about like your social life. You, th- what year was this that you were in New York City? Um, I think I was in New York City uh, in the uh, middle eighties. Okay, and so social life there. You know, you were at this point. Were you a feminist? Were you a oh, liberal? Were absolutely, you... <laughs> absolutely, totally feminist, and. Uh, and this this world that I was in, uh, it brought friends with it, mm-hmm. you know, because all my women friends, we called ourselves uh, the Bat Women because people were working in parole. Mm-hmm. People were working in alternatives to incarceration. People were working in courts. Mm-hmm. So we, were, we all were working around the criminal justice system. Okay. And... Um, and we were women, and uh, we had to stick together. It was it was difficult. I mean, it's very competitive. Yeah, and it's a man's world at that point. It, it's like... definitely definitely a man's a man's world at that mm-hmm. point. People wanted more women, and I mean, you know, I've I've never I could always get a job. I was uh, smart, and so was everybody else. But you really had to you had to know what was going on, right. and without that network. Yeah. So, so, mm-hmm. so 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 social life was was built around that. Yeah. You know? And then describe like feminism at that time. Like this is like when feminism really was seeing like its height. Right. Like you came off the 60s and 70s and like what what like socially, what was that like? You say it came with a group of friends, but like. You know, were you guys going to conferences or were you one of the people holding the posters up and going to the marches? I don't think we did much marching by that time in New York. Mm -hmm. We did, uh, when I was on the the West Coast, uh, we began fighting against uh, rape. And at at that time, in lots of states, rape was kind of a free crime. It was very hard to get a conviction. That is crazy. It's it, and the kinds of things that we take for granted today. Well, you were dressed uh, provocatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those things were real, uh, uh, and could get your case thrown out. Or you had a date. You know yeah. the idea of date rape. That's that's fairly new. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying you, like you these women, the they'd wear like they're, you know, just wearing a cute mini skirt and a nice blouse and they're going out and then they get attacked. Right. And then they go to court and they're like, well, you should have been wearing that outfit. Maybe right. You what were you wearing? Oh, what my What were goodness. you wearing? You were asking for it. Yeah. And one of the things that I remember from that time, and of course, it, it was horrible for us and much worse for black women. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, African-American women at that time were uh, uh, advocating uh, guns. And they, at one of our uh, women's uh, 
women's festivals. I worked on women's music festivals a lot. I love those. Oh, well, that's uh, cool. At, that's a fun fact about Sherry we didn't know. <laughs> and at one of our festivals, they were selling these T-shirts that said you can't rape a 38. Can you imagine if women walked around wearing that these days? Like, <laughs> I don't know if it'd be scandalous or epic. Like, <laughs> Right, right. Well, it's a pretty clear statement right. of, you know, we, we will no longer be powerless. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of a lot of those, uh, those uh, laws have changed, and uh, yeah. but but we but people take that for granted mm -hmm. that and and when you see it abused, it just makes you crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, when I hear this, I think it almost makes sense at that time that feminism was so attractive because you did see very outrageous things like that and you right. did see the woman being pushed down and held back and then you have like this cry of feminism that says like no we're going to stand up we're going to fight for ourselves we demand equality but it seems like it like the the pendulum also swung too far in that arena when did you start to see like the cracks and the faults in the democrat party and feminism in general well it, well, that's that's a huge question, Taylor. It's like you know the cultural piece and yeah. and you know and the political piece, uh, and you know that we're so blessed as Republicans because pretty much everything the Democrats do, they do wrong. <laughs> but uh, the the uh, it it was early on in bringing some of the some of the things that had feminist names on them, like you know the sexual revolution mm -hmm. wasn't our war. Mm -hmm. That. Oh, I've read a book about this where it's like, didn't a guy end up sponsoring? Like, wasn't a guy like if you dig, dig down to the root of it, started yeah. by a, a man? Yeah. Well, and Barry Weiss is doing a huge debate on, you know, whether or not feminism has been uh, uh, valuable for, for women overall. It's hard for me to see having been in, in having lived in a time where uh, there weren't any women in leadership positions, right. and now it's it's much more common to see that. Yeah. Although rarely without a fight. Yeah. Uh, but um, I I think that piece, you know, it's it's just hard to get to that piece where everyone is seen for on merit. It's like what mm -hmm. we were saying about colorblindness. Mm -hmm. You need to be gender gender blind. Mm -hmm. But the the Democrats, I mean, they. They went quotas. Yeah. They went quotas, you know. It, I was so stunned when I first got to Texas because I was uh, working as a journalist, and I had to go to all the political conventions, which is great. I went to the national conventions for the Republicans. I went for the Democrats. And the Democrats, you know, they had, you had to have 45 women and 35 black women and, you know, 14 gay people or whatever. They had a, an actual quota. Wow. During that time, the Texas Republican Party was led by women. Hmm. You know, Susan Susan Weddington was the chair for a long time, and then I can't remember that other person. But but yeah, w there was a whole period in just there. naturally. It's not just like they naturally. were like forced into it because it sounds like the Democrats. Right. It was very much like we have to hit this, and I can like if I'm looking at it from someone who sits on the left, it's like, well, yeah, we have to force it because that reflects society and re society is not being reflected in these groups. But in actuality, let society reflect what is actually there. So if there are not 25 black women who are interested in going to a political conference, like why force them to, like why force that quota on your audience? I just, 
And yeah, maybe your delegation should be all black women. Yeah. I mean, it, who's, yeah, who's to say they're not limiting it? Yeah. Who's doing the work? Mm hmm. And who's who's you know, who's doing the work. And I think that's what happens in our Republican Party. I mean, that's always been true. I mean, I think uh, we've known that grassroots women. I mean, it was women that turned Repub uh, Texas red. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it Barbara Bush, uh, George the first uh, husband came here and she was involved in the whole grassroots women's movement. Uh, and uh, the. Uh, Texas Federation of Republican Women that was founded when there were no Republicans. That's I mean, Barbara crazy. Bush talked about going to over in Midland, Odessa, going to Republican meetings, and they'd be the only people there. Wow. So they began to build that grassroots through the Texas Federation of Republican Women, That's and, which now is is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there were some men running for office and doing all those, mm -hmm. doing all these other things. I'm not saying they did it alone. Yeah. But. Uh, but huge piece. And so, of course, they're going to have a seat at the table. They still have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's the, they're the only people at the table. Yeah. So when you were in New York, let's go back to David Dinkins. Okay. Tell us who he is and just how you're involved in that process. <laughs> David Dinkins uh, was the first African-American to be elected mayor of New York City. Yeah. And I supported him. He had come to me because I was an expert on jails and incarceration and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he had asked me to work with him on his campaign to make proposals on criminal justice reform. And mm -hmm. I did that. And, and I liked him. And I felt at that time, uh, uh, remember Trump? This is how long Trump has been with me. <laughs> so Trump was a big mocker in New York City at that time, and mm -hmm. he was always at war with the former mayor, Ed Koch. And so Dinkins came in, and he had just a different vibe. It was just he was thoughtful and old New York, and it seemed to me New York is, is uh, it was time for New York to have a black mayor. Mm -hmm. Dinkins had the experience to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and was he a Democrat or Republican? Oh, he was a Democrat. There were no Republicans in New York at that mm -hmm. time. Uh, and uh, and I, I wanted to say, I was not one of those moderate Democrats that kind of moved over to being a Republican. I was a left-wing Democrat. I've never been a moderate anything. <laughs> So, you know, I, I really, really believed in that. And uh, he appointed me uh, to work at the New York Health and Hospitals Corporation. Mm -hmm. And that's when cracks began to appear in my yes in my uh, thinking about all this. And that's but, what we want to do a little dive into is those cracks. So you were and I like that you clarified like you were left wing. So if there's anyone listening to this podcast who either is because maybe they're a friend of one of us or <laughs> and they're brave enough to venture into listening to this podcast or if you have like a family member or a friend. Um, Are we going to hold them up in prayer now? <laughs> yeah, let's just take a little <laughs> candle. Um, so if we have people like that listening, it's good that you clarified that because we want people to know that it is possible to change your viewpoint. We had Britt on earlier and she talked about how she kind of got pulled into that kind of woke style era of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, we have viewers that can identify with this, but you also made the switch to like hardcore to hardcore. And so walk us through that. It just seems like so hard to believe that someone can go like alt left to right. Um, and you especially, like you were in the heydays, I feel like, of the left. <laughs> like you were when the left really was cool. And now now that's just kind of like, sorry, I can't say on record the left was cool. Back when like, you know, they had all the style and the pizzazz and like right. the swag and they, you and know, women were in power. And, and as you described, like Republicans were doing the same thing. I just think we've always been low key about it and more subtle. And, and we, we were in the pantsuits. Yes. And the, yeah. And, and were, we stayed in our skirts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we were very proper. And, and it kind of and I kind of saw that and particularly where I was, uh, New York, New Jersey. I mean, Christine Todd Whitman ran for governor of New Jersey and, you know, old, old money, mm-hmm. you know, Republican or Democrat, uh, Republican mm-hmm. and uh, always in the St. John's suit and, you know, <laughs> and uh, the sensible heels. Yes. And, yes. You yes, know, yes. just that that stereotype, which was, you know, nothing like how I had lived my life with, you know, wild curly hair and, and, uh, I wish we had an image we could like throw up to show like <laughs> these epic. Cause I just feel like you rock the pantsuits now. I just can't imagine <laughs> like the hair and the whole get up. Like we got to get a picture maybe in jeans. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so describe like one or two of those cracks, like that led you to Republicanism to the, to the right. Or to just to begin to ask questions, Mm -hmm. to begin to ask questions. In working at the Health and Hospitals Corporation, uh, when I was there, so this Democrat city, I mean, we talk about Democrat cities, uh, you know, ruining cities, uh, Democrats ruining cities. Now there were four epidemics, AIDS, low birth weight babies, tuberculosis, and asthma. And the city was broke. Wow. So it was like a third world country. And I was working at the Health and Hospitals Corporation. So we determined that one thing that we could do would be set up clinics for asthma. So you, could, you wouldn't have to go to the emergency room of the hospital, which is where everybody was going. Wow who was having an asthma attack, you could just go to a clinic and get an inhaler. And mm-hmm. we started working on IDs and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, who could be against this? Mm-hmm. The mayor was signed off on it. He was excited about it. Well, who was against it was the New York City Health and Hospitals Workers Union. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Makes sense to me. They get paid a lot of money to do those extra hours. They mm-hmm. wanted that overflow crowd in the emergency room was valuable to them, mm-hmm. more valuable to them than the people of New York City. And yeah. we see, of course, Taylor, we see this same kind of behavior right now with the teachers unions yeah. here in Texas where they said it doesn't matter how much money you give us, we still won't support yeah. parental empo- empowerment school choice. So yeah. yeah, so I was like going, wow. Because I had my father, mm-hmm. Democrats, unions, party of the working man. Mm-hmm. And no, we would just rather have these these children choking in the emergency room, maybe dying, so that we can uh, get that uh, uh, extra time and half on our check. That is crazy. Yeah. 
So you saw that. So you saw that there was a disconnect between like, hey, this is servicing the people and this is actually a good idea. Mm-hmm. And then seeing that get rejected and pushed down right. by the, like, the hospital system. So mm-hmm. that was like a crack in the foundation that things weren't lining up. And that right. led you to ask more and more questions of like, well, what else isn't lining up? Yeah. I mean, I didn't just like go, oh, my gosh, I must be a conservative right. that I'm even asking these questions. I did. But things like that just kept coming up. I was working in New Jersey on a school breakfast program. You know, breakfast makes a real difference. If Mm -hmm. you have a breakfast, you perform better. And uh, the federal government provides food. You just need to pay the teachers or the assistants, the cafeteria workers, to lay it out there. And we're not talking ham and eggs. We're talking about, you know, oatmeal, banana, Mm -hmm. something like that. Well, uh, they wanted time and half to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everybody thought that was fair. And I was working in three counties. And uh, you know me, I'm, I can do development. I came in and I said, you know, I think I can raise the money for this. It wasn't, you know, it was... Sure. Yeah, so. seven or seven or eight hundred thousand dollars. Remember, that's you know, that's that's Pfizer, that's AT and T, that's I mean, there were big corporations. Right. So I think I can raise the money for this. Mm-hmm. And the school advocates said, "No, we 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 really don't want you to do that. We don't want to raise the money. We think it's a better story." What? I, and I'm like, a better story? They wanted. You know, they wanted another federal government appropriation mm. to solve the problem. Yeah. When to me, the problem could have been solved, the community would have solved the problem. Yeah, it just sounds like you're offering very practical solutions that right. are affordable and effective. And instead, a lot of them are like, sounds like they're just like turning back to the federal government being like, no. Like, we want it to come from the federal government. Like, we want our checks and we want our money. This is our narrative. This is our narrative. It's crazy. And, I, you know, I was seeing a, a lot more of that and a lot of it in education, Taylor. I mean, uh, Newark, Newark Public Schools, and, and I, I was writing about this at the time, Newark Public Schools was spending the same amount annual per pupil spending was the same as Harvard. The graduation rate was 4%. Oh, my goodness. 4%? 4%. And I was writing stories. The, they were, they had, they uh, provided cars for the school board. What? For the New York Post. So they got, got cars. And I was interviewing people, and they, they said, I said, well, what what do you do with this car? And she said, well, they just told me I get a car, so I just went down and got a car. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean car like you go get a car. I mean car driver, drive you around. Oh, even fancier. Yeah. You get a personal driver. Right. And you get a full-time Uber. 96% of your kids. That's crazy. It's like, look at the incentives. Like, what are you incentivizing these teachers to do if you're giving this on the front end and, you know... 4% 4% graduation rate, it just literally nonsensical. Exactly. Nonsensical. Exactly. And it was, I mean, you know, just, just tragic, just tragic. Uh, and uh, the, the more I started looking at that, particularly through education, school choice movement, I was working in the school choice movement then, mm-hmm. so in the middle 80s, mm-hmm. and um, it was just considered heresy 
to to bring it in. I mean, they did ballot measures. People ran for office on that. And uh, I, I've been writing about school choice for a long time. And, Crazy. Uh, couldn't see it. So what was, like, the defining moment for you where you're just like, wow, I have to accept that, like, after everything I've seen, I don't think I'm a Democrat anymore? Well, I was writing, so I had that perspective. Mm-hmm. And people started pinging back, you know. Sherry, this doesn't sound like, you know, sounds like this is pretty left-wing. And people would write the newspaper. I have one upstairs, and it said, you know, it's clear that Sherry, you know, hates Bill Clinton. Wow. And then it's clear that Sherry's in Clinton's camp. And I forgot about that. (laughs) That was a big deal to me. Yeah. I had voted for Clinton. I had campaigned for Clinton, and uh, and I was a feminist. Mm-hmm. Where the uh, the thing that we believed is the personal is political. Hmm. Now, I don't know if I still believe that. I guess I still do. Uh, character matters. Yeah, character definitely does matter. And I I uh, I wrote about it a lot. Character when it comes to politics? or Character when it comes to politics. I mean, my paper sent me to Washington. I was involved in all the hearings, got to cover those hearings, and wrote about Monica. I never got to interview her. I tried to. But... uh, Did you say Monica? Yeah. Like Monica Lewinsky? Monica Lewinsky. Wild. (laughs) Tried to interview her. Uh, But it, it, that whole, the, the... The idea of, you know, we see now MoveOn.org is really, is still around. MoveOn.org is still an organization. Oh, is that an education? No, MoveOn.org is a left-wing something. Gotcha. You know, they still work on the, on the left. Uh, but what they meant was move on from Bill Clinton. He's, hmm. He slept with this intern, but let's move on. Oh, and just like not move on is get him out of office. Move on is just like guys, he must stop. Like let him go back right, to yeah. work. Yeah, it's not a big deal. That is that makes no sense because like women's rights at that time. Like right, exactly, it just, just seems like there's a lot of conflicting stories out there. When, and a lot of that happened. I mean, James Carville, when the people were talking about Clinton, and of course Clinton's uh, sex life was notorious. I mean, he made that statement: "You never know what's going to happen when you drag a dollar bill through a trailer park." Wow. Well, I mean, classes, sexes. That's worse than what Trump said, in my opinion. Like, that is that is awful. It's awful. It is definitely awful. And it matters to me. It matters to me what Trump did. Uh, and I think as, as women, we can't just go move on. Yeah, no. This doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And, and I, I think to answer your question, for me, there was no, really no coming back. Mm-hmm. After, after after Bill Clinton. Um, but I remember the moment when I was driving to vote mm-hmm. and I uh, the it was a gubernatorial wasn't presidential and I knew the guy running for governor of New Jersey was a crook, the Democrat, the incumbent. Mm. And I could I had always thought that I would never vote Republican while my father was alive. Yeah. But I, I couldn't I was thinking about it, and I could not, couldn't vote for him. So I, that was my first. Wow. So you're driving to go vote, and you just made the decision in the car of, like, I, 
because it, it sounds like it all comes back to character mm. and like your writing almost seemed like a way for you to process all of this. And, and it's interesting that like, you know, your viewpoints, it sounded like they started to shift in your articles and people were kind of noticing like, Oh, like this is like a little bit of change in tone and, you know, and, um, and then, yeah, I just think that's so, I love that. It's like, it just feels like that could just totally be a scene in a movie of you just like standing, getting ready to vote and just <laughs> like life is totally going to shift for you and you're going to vote Republican for the first time. Like. And, and and vote for a woman. Oh, Republican woman. Yeah, I voted for Christine Todd Whitman. That was oh. the, the first the first time I voted Republican. And, and it was for a woman. How cool is that? I know. it was. And the thing was, I didn't like embrace it. Okay. I didn't embrace it. The thing that I thought was she had so much money mm-hmm. that it was unlikely that she would be corrupt. Interesting. I mean, the the Democrat, the in, that who she beat, yeah. Jim Florio, he, he w- had given all the state's bond business to his brother-in-law. Mm. I mean, that's pretty corrupt. Yeah. So the thing that I wasn't like, oh, great, I love these Republicans now. I just thought, well, you know, she's probably this not. This is gonna- strategic. This was a right. strategic. This was a strategic move of like, okay, I don't, I don't necessarily want to vote for the Democrat, but I don't really want to vote for the Republican. But like, there's no way she's going to win. So you know what? I'll vote Republican. Right. That's true. That's true. And Bill Bradley, remember the basketball star? You probably don't. I can't say I do. Bill Bradley played for the New York Knicks and uh, ran. It was in the U.S. Senate for many years, and then ran for president. And and he lost badly because he couldn't speak. But he told me one time. <laughs> He said, the only relevant question in politics is compared to what? Ooh. And that's, of course, right where we've been for the last, you know, decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. So was it then just like a slow shift for you of like, you know, that kind of opened the door of like, well, I voted for Republicans. So then did you step into like the ballot box going forward and the rest of life kind of saying like, okay, well, the door's open now. Like, maybe I want to take another step closer and then take a step through and maybe walk further down this journey. Well, being a reporter, I was really blessed because I got to meet everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I I voted, you know, for people that I thought were the the best people. But, yeah, I began shifting Mm -hmm. over to more voting Republican. I voted for uh, uh, Dole. I guess I voted for Dole. I didn't vote for Clinton. and I voted for George W. Bush. Whoop. So. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully we're allowed to talk about this on the pod. I don't see why. We, we're not telling anyone what I, to I vote for. I came down here. I was up at Carl Rove. And I, I knocked on the door of the Capitol. I was like this reporter. I had this thing on, you know, Trent, New Jersey. I knocked on the governor's mansion. Oh, my gosh. Because I knew all these big money people from New Jersey were here meeting with him because he was thinking about running for president. Yeah. I knock on the door. And Carl Rove comes to the door. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to talk. I didn't want to talk to Bush. I said, I'd really like to talk to some of these New Jersey guys if they're committing to Bush. And he, he, he was just so gracious. He said, you know, Sherry, we're not going to let you in. We're not going to let you talk. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, I, that was one of my introductions to Texas. Wow. So, uh, and I always, I always appreciated Carl after that. It was very gracious. And That's then. awesome. So getting to more of like our pop cultural side of things, you know, we were talking about the show, You speaking of you being a young feminist uh, out in New York City, 
Sex in the City. <laughs> um, they just came out with their, I guess, like, their, like, what do you call it? It's not a series. It's, like, their new launch for... Uh, the sequel. The sequel. Yeah, the yes. sequel. And just like that. And just like that. Have I, you watched any of it? I have watched quite a bit of it. Uh, and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. It would because that... that uh, there was that kind of um, hypersexualization of women mm-hmm. uh, that happened, and uh, uh, and because of that show. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing that we love about that show is the fashion. Yes, I mean you know that they never, none of the characters ever wore the same outfit twice. Crazy. So you you were watching for that, and you were watching them do their professional back and forth as well as what they were doing with men. Yeah. Were you kind of the Carrie Bradshaw of politics in New York City? I mean, you're a journalist, <laughs> walking around, doing your thing. I felt like that. I mean, I felt like I wrote a lot. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, was always putting out... Uh, columns. I didn't have a regular column in New York. I did in in Portland, and I did in New Jersey, but not in but not in New York. Uh, and uh, and so you know, I was I was in the paper. Yeah. You know, a lot. Yeah. And so it's like you can really identify with like Sex and City, like the show. And and so you said that you've watched episode. Have you seen like the whole series, Sex and the City? Oh yeah. Okay, so like you're totally familiar with it. Um, well, when I was in got here to San Antonio, there was all. These people at the Express News, we we all watch it together. Wow, it's like a real <laughs> bonding moment. So, in the in the um, sequel, what are your thoughts on that? Do you like it? Was it like a turn from the original? Is it too much? To not enough? Oh, it's so New York. <laughs> it's so New York. These women are so tiresome, and of course they they are all super politically correct. Right. I mean, just and and never questioning. Mm. Never I like that. I feel like that's very observational. Like they're not. It's like they just have to say what they know is right. And I feel like it kind of takes away from the script. It doesn't right. add anything to it. I think it takes away. Yeah. There was an in- interesting uh, one like two or three weeks ago. And they she, uh, Carrie went to a fundraiser for uh, Candace Bergen, who was raising money, and all these old feminists were there, and Gloria Steinem was there. And she had her picture taken with Gloria Steinem. And uh, and Gloria Steinem says, I guess we believe the same things. Hmm. That was her line. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if you believe the same things as her, mm-hmm. That means that American feminism is on pretty shaky ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, how is it? How has it shifted in your point of view as someone who is like a self-proclaimed feminist now turned Republican? How how do you see it changing? <sighs> well, I think a couple of things. I mean, it's not like oh, we've won. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that. Uh, you always, and this is probably true for everyone, but you always have to lean in. Mm-hmm. You always have to remind people uh, yeah. how good you are. I mean, you know that. We, you always have to remind people how good you are. Yeah. Uh, because people uh, tend to gravitate around the sameness. Mm-hmm. I've been really blessed 
since I've been in Texas. Um, I, after I left the newspaper, um, I worked with Dick Weekly at Texans for Lawsuit Reform, mm -hmm. who is an exemplary, exemplary 21st century guy. Mm -hmm. He just wanted the smartest people. Yeah. So that sounds like that's everything that they would have wanted on the left. That's Yes, it was certainly everything that I wanted. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be judged on my merit. Mm. I wanted to be given a chance to to do whatever I wanted to do. And he's such a great manager. Uh, you know, he, he, he runs one of the most successful uh, home building companies in the country. So he would just always say, go, you you have ownership of this. Just go do it. I love that. He like empowered you to go right. make good decisions because your merit, it was all based on your merit. You were smart. You were capable. You could pull this off and he trusted you. Right. And and it let, let me know how much I could do. And then from him, uh, I went to work for Lieutenant Governor Patrick, mm -hmm. who is famous for putting women in leadership positions. And uh, there was a time, I, I, I haven't looked now, but I was the only woman among the big three that was, you know, in a leadership position mm -hmm. in one of the big three offices. And I don't think we ever thought about it or even discussed it. Mm -hmm. um, he has a lot of, there's a lot of, of his advisors, his policy advisors are women. A lot of the Senate leadership, his lieutenants are women. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just an unconscious thing, which is what you want. Again. Exactly. I was about to say, I like that, like, you didn't notice it because, you know, why would you have to look around and be like, yeah, there's another woman. Like, we're doing this. It's more like, hey, we're all capable people, and you're just interacting with someone then to get the job done, and it doesn't matter right. what they look like, what they, you know, it all matters on, like, how good they are at their job, exactly. their expertise. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to work that way and never have to wonder. Yeah. Going back to Sex and the City, it, it, like, the term exhausting came out right it's like it is a little exhausting to watch right and i think what you just described is the opposite it's not exhausting it's just you're getting your job done you're not wasting all this emotional energy trying to do these like little power plays of like am i in the right like viewpoint here am i wearing the right thing here like is this you know it's not like overwhelming all your thoughts and that's where i think you know the left can get it wrong but it can look right in the sense that it's like they know how to dress they know like they focus so much on you know the words and the emotions and the appeals and the fashion and then you know so they the cultural like the culture is is all about them right they have disney they have the fashion world like i get it they have it all um except for the substance and that's like just getting the job done and i hate to like make it so black and white right. but you know, because there are good Democrats out there. There are, like, we're not saying that they're evil, but it's just what level of work are you actually accomplishing? And I just feel like, I mean, all of your stories show that's like, man, you've gotten so much done in your life. So much done. Well, and the, and the energy, I mean, you were talking about it being exhausting. I mm -hmm. think it's I think it's incredibly exhausting to be on the left. First of all, you're spending all this energy in fear of climate change. Mm. Yeah. You know, not thinking about it rationally, mm -hmm. you know, and, th and thinking about what is actually happening, what we are actually doing. Instead, there's just like hate and panic mm -hmm. about that. And then if you believe 
that America is entirely driven by racism, Mm -hmm. then you've got to worry about that all the time, too. I see what you're saying. Like these global anxieties of like they will affect every area of your life. And that's, I mean, that's what we're seeing from the Gen Zs. Yeah. They're depressed. Yeah. Well, I'd be depressed, too, if I, if I felt the world was going to end and it was just a racist hellhole. Yeah. What a good point. But that's not what I see. That's not where I live. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as, as I said, I've been around for a while. I, I went through the You Can't Rape a 38 movement. Mm-hmm. And I've seen things change the year I live in now. Is is it perfect? No. Mm-hmm. Is it better than 10 years ago? Yes. Is it better than 50 years ago? Absolutely. Yeah. I like how you look at it in a very positive frame. Like things are getting better. They may not be perfection. They may not be exactly what you want to see right now. And there's always going to be things to fix. But like looking at it and what was the what was the quote you said about comparison? Policy is all about you compare it to or oh compared to what yeah compared to what yeah you're right yeah so it's like you know you look at all this eco-anxiety that gen x is experiencing it's like okay compared to what because my dad always said i don't know if um how much of this is true but when he was little he was like told like you need to use plastic bags and not paper bags because we're killing all the trees and (laughs) it's gonna be the ice age so you just better prepare like and he's like it's just so opposite to what they're telling you guys now now you're supposed to use paper bags and like we're all gonna die of like heat warnings like (laughs) i just raised with all of that like those counter perspectives i'm like oh okay yeah yeah it's just uh you know it's it's compared to what it's it's so so much better than so it was. what would your advice be to a girl in college who is figuring out her career path she has friends you know she claims that she's more of a moderate she probably leans a little left in certain areas um what would you tell her of like hey when you go out into the workforce you know this is the advice that i would give you and i know that seems like a weird like type of question but it's just like they don't tend to know their worldview it's not like it's not set in stone yet mm-hmm. so as a you know a young per, like a, lo- a young college student with a flexible worldview uh-huh. going into the professional world what advice would you give someone like that well well one thing i mean one of the things that we who are not gen xers tend to experience is an uh, unwillingness to debate or discuss issues because I think from from what I've read although the Gen X's in my life will usually talk but uh, a lot of times they don't want to talk Mm -hmm. well racism is not debatable we're not going to discuss that Mm -hmm. Uh, climate change not debatable we're not going to discuss debate everything right just you know ask questions Practice. If you get uncomfortable if somebody disagrees with you, mm-hmm. practice listening mm-hmm. and hanging in and asking questions. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then trust your judgment. What feels right to you? You know, read. Don't get yourself in some silo. Don't just listen to the Sweet Tea podcast. Yeah. You listen know. to this and 901 Congress. Right. <laughs> listen to this and, yeah, 90 Congress and... And look at all sides, you know, listen to what the people at CPPP are saying, you know. Yeah, I like I like that you said that because so you said Gen Xers are like they don't want to debate. But I see that also in like a little bit of millennial, but like mostly Gen Z of like, just be PC, don't ruffle feathers, like things are too toxic right now. Like there's too much going on. There's too much hate in the world. But it's like there's there's 
I like that you called it debating because de debating doesn't mean like, oh, we're in this heated argument. It just means we are pushing each other's worldviews by the questions we're asking and we're wanting a defense for them. And honestly, all of this makes me wish that like they would teach logic and reasoning in like high school and make it mandatory in college. Because I, I think we've lost that. I think we've got a bill for that. <laughs> I love it. I think we're working on that. But, you know, you said something that I think it's really an overused word. Oh, the situation in my office is so toxic. Toxic. Toxic, Gi toxic. Give me a break. You want to know toxic? Sit right over there and let's talk about toxic. Right. I mean, the kinds of things that that the women before you have had to endure, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that that not things that are actionable just things that are hostile. Yeah. And uh, I think it's so overused, so overused. So you need to be, the other thing I would say to this uh, uh, person is, you know, find something that you love to do. We're really blessed right now. Mm -hmm. You can do practically anything you want in any frame that you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, you, if you're doing that, then everything is built around making that work. Mm -hmm. I always knew that I wanted to write. But once I worked for newspapers and in media companies, I knew I didn't want to do just that. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to be involved in shaping politics and shaping policy. Well, and everybody told me you couldn't do that. Same with me. I'm a designer. And they're like, what, you're going to do design with politics? Like, what are you going to do, make a poster? And I was like, maybe. <laughs> Maybe I'll do more. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I don't know. You make some pretty cool posters. Oh, Taylor. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But, but yeah, make it, you know, make it it work. I mean, because everybody told me you, you've got to decide if you want to be a player or a pundit. Mm. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. I like that. So you're saying like, ladies, like you paved the way. Right. You and your generation paved the way. And you're telling them, like, you guys have choices. Like, don't waste it. Like, get out there. Explore your interests. You have the luxury of doing something that you would love and enjoy. So, you know, don't just twiddle your thumbs and say, wow, my work is so toxic. It's so hard. Like, okay, is it toxic? Like, really ask yourself. I think, you know, challenge yourself <laughs> back on that. Is it toxic? Like, is there something you can do to stop that? Like, you, I just feel like, you know, you're also yeah. talking a lot about empowerment, like self-empowerment. Like, guys, right. like, you are capable of dealing with this. It is okay. You're going to make it. Like, it may not be as difficult as you think it right. is. We're not saying that it doesn't hurt or that it's a little, or that's, you know, not a little lonely sometimes. But, like, all things considered, like, just compare yourself to to what happened 10 years ago, 50 right. years ago, like, and, you know, maybe shifting that perspective can help them. Yeah, see where you want to go. And if this is something that you need to get there, then, you know, push, push through, push through, because you it. never, you never know. And that's, that's the other thing uh, uh, with people in staying here at Ninth and Congress and around here. So I've been working up around the Capitol for over 20 years, this Capitol. You, you never know people where they're going to show up. That's cool. You never know where they're going to show up. And so it's really good not to have a very long list of enemies. I like it. Okay, so don't make enemies. Don't make enemies. I mean, I've got a few people who I think just were have done things that were inexcusable, but for the most part, mm -hmm. they're going to show up somewhere else. They're going to be on the other side of a table. 
I like that. Well, interns hanging out, you're just like, okay, like treat them nicely because they could be running for office and trying to get your bill passed. And they could get elected and try to get trying to get your bill passed. That's really cool. Well, Sherry, yeah. Or you're trying to get into the into somebody's office and the interns thinking maybe there's no time for you. Yeah. Or they think you're the coolest and they let you in at the front of the line. That's how I see it going for you. Um, Sherry, thank you so much for joining us on this one-on-one interview. Your story is so awesome. Thank you for paving the way for girls like me to get out there and (laughs) wear jeans and wear skirts and wear whatever we want, but also to just get to go out and feel safe as a female and safe like physically, but also safe to pursue our dreams. Like We did not have to climb the hill that you girls climbed before us. And I just, from my generation to yours, we say thank you for paving the way. It's been really fun talking with you. Oh, thank you, Taylor. It's been it's been great. And of course, climbing those hills, it's really good to be wearing jeans. Oh, yep, yep. <laughs> and heels. We'll climb it in jeans and heels. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for joining us on this interview style of the Sweet Tea podcast, the Sweet Tea series. Uh, join us next week. Ari will be back, and we will have another super fun guest. Thanks, y'all.